Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Stuart Bohart, Managing Director and President of Fort Investment Management. This podcast is a shortened version of a conversation that we had about the current state of the markets, their evolution, systematic trading, adaptive models, and the role of humans in quant. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I think the place to start today is how we think about this market starting in March, and then there's been these continual wobbles that we've seen throughout the last few months. Well, one thing I, I always note is that thousand-year flood seems to come annually now, and, and the market has become more attuned to dealing with disruptions. I think much of what the market's come to expect is central banks to get involved early and in a significant manner. But this is different, and I think important, whether you're a discretionary or systematic investor, to learn from the past, but Uh, also be wary of it. We try to avoid any sense of dogma that we actually know what's going to happen or we know the answer in the systematic business. We're trying to have odds on favorites on what's likely to happen based on the past and through diversification have a series of small exposures so that no one position can really do any harm. That doesn't mean that there won't be events where all the positions move together and move against you. As a a quant investor, how do you think about it? Because if you do use your own mindset and and look at the market, you start to question where the market is going, given that there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between what you would expect to happen and what's actually happening today. Yeah, so I think a little behind that question is perhaps more of a discretionary lens. And the reason I say that is, If you're dogmatic in your views, you believe in a certain thing, you believe in valuations, you believe that stocks at three times forward earnings are dirt cheap and at 100 times are uh, overvalued, or you've come up with GARP growth at a reasonable price, you know, some sort of metrics, you you have defined the world and you are puzzled when it doesn't fit your definitions. You're also usually losing a lot of money when it doesn't fit your definitions. Quants generally don't have that dogmatic view about the market of what it should be. What quants know is what it was and what the data will tell them. And in fact, I always point out that uh, that's no different than a discretionary person. They can only know the past. It's not possible to know the future. All of us in the investment world spend our time trying to predict the future. And some try to predict the future Uh, by observing that a company has come up with a a great product and it's that person's instinct that everyone is going to want that widget and the company is well prepared to make millions of them at a good price with decent margins. And therefore, uh, my prediction of the future is widgets find a home uh, around the world and this company prospers. But I'm still predicting the future. Quan is doing the same thing, but is using past data to get a hint at what's likely to happen in the future. And while we're all, all using past data, we're, we're not uh, coming up with our own views 
uh, our own guesses on how it's likely to, to pan out. We're looking at the data and, and saying that uh, the data tells me that in these circumstances, this other reaction is probable. You know, probable, not highly likely, maybe not even likely, but it's better than 50-50. Uh, and a series of those kinds of bets forms a quant portfolio. One of the arts in this is determining which of your signals and when uh, those signals are producing better probabilities and when are they producing uh, lighter probabilities. And that, of course, is all systematic as well. But this issue of the Fed comes in, suppresses volatility, or takes away downside. First of all, that's their mandate. They're, they're supposed to do that. They've become more aggressive about doing that in these past dislocations. But you can capture that in, in quant models because it's happened in the past and you have some sense of what massive liquidity means for models. Stu, can you give me an example of what you're talking about here? What you're really getting at, I think, is the notion that there are players in the market that are insensitive to price, right? They are going to buy securities without regard to valuation of any kind, right? And indiscriminate buyers of securities have a, a big impact on market. You can argue it's good or it's bad. I hear hedge funds talk about indexing in ETFs and say that that, that massive amount of uh, buys and sells has ruined the opportunity for long short. It's not logical to me because if I was a discretionary long short player focused on valuation and I had an opportunity to participate in a market that was highly efficient or a market that had many large participants that indiscriminately purchased securities, I would choose to be in the market that has these massive indiscriminate buyers and sellers. That creates inefficiency. And inefficiency ultimately over the right time frame is what should drive performance for a discretionary manager. The time frame may be longer than they like, but the fact that you're in an index uh, doesn't have dramatic impact on your underlying business. It, it does have impact on a business. For example, if I'm in an index, I obviously would have an easier time selling more equity and uh, I may well have an easier time selling debt or convertible bonds or you know, my capital structure. So there are definitely some advantages. But the fact that I have buyers of my stock every day as part of an index doesn't impact my sales and my ability to go out and move my product. And ultimately, that's what's going to dictate success in a company. How would that be? But the ultimately part has been a lot longer than, um, than they thought. But I don't think that part of the equation is due to these massive indiscriminate buyers of securities in equities anyway. I think that part is related to long-term zero rates. And when money is free, it's much easier to keep a poor company running. And so that may be more of a causal factor on why long short managers have had a harder time monetizing what they think are great picks and pans in their portfolio because cheap money delays the inevitable reckoning. Uh, so that, that kind of covers those two massive groups of indiscriminate buyers, the central banks who flood the market with money and indexers who are regularly in buying securities 
for which they know very little. It, it, as an example, I just point out, someone who buys uh, the um, S&P index buys a spider. They don't do any research before that. They just buy it. You know, it's an index. They don't, they don't order up 500 quarterly statements and start pouring through them and deciding whether they really like this mix of 500 cap-weighted names. They just buy it. In fact, most of them probably can't tell you uh, the largest cap name or the smallest cap name. Maybe they can today, but generally they don't know if, if um, you know, what the top five are. They probably guess they're tech companies now. Sorry, just to jump in there. What does that mean for momentum as a strategy? Does that mean that momentum should be really a key part of anyone's portfolio? Because if there is this central bank intervention that we should always expect when things go bad, we've got a large number of indiscriminate buyers, whether they're Robin Hood style traders or they're buying passive ETFs. Does that mean that momentum should be really a key part of of the portfolio? I wouldn't go that far. um, Well, first of all, we can talk about momentum a little bit. Very broad term. And when when you actually go in and try to determine how to take advantage of momentum, it becomes far more complex. And the evidence is in the fact that there are, there are quants who uh, have momentum as a big part of their strategy and their returns are, uh, are divergent. Uh, you know, momentum isn't one thing, it really depends how you execute it. And there are so many variables that go into that, uh, your look back periods, your degrees of momentum that trigger your buys, what kinds of stops, do you have an overlay of mean reversion in the, uh, in the strategy? So it is hard to categorize broadly. There are momentum indices and trend indices and things like that. They give you a, a rough idea, but I don't think they're any more valuable, frankly, than hedge fund indices that try to break down alphas into factors. I know that most of those are developed by big investment banks who are keen to sell structured product on them. Uh, I, I just don't think the business is that straightforward. One momentum strategy can be very unlike another. And, and a key part of that is the assembly of the signals that uh, comprise any funds momentum strategy and the weighting of those signals. At Fort, we focus on uh, mixing signals with a, an adaptive process that uh, allows uh, our portfolio and our strategies to reweight on their own. It's a, a form of machine learning that tailors our risk. So while we are running the same types of strategies over long periods of time, our, our individual mix of strategies and indeed the parameters inside those strategies are constantly changing. So much so that, that you can look at what we do and, and while you can call it one thing, if you actually break it down by periods and look at the mixes and look at the signals and look at the parameters and look at the markets and the lookbacks and all these different things, it, it's vastly different time period to time period. And that is one of the tricks to long-term success in the quant space. Uh, as, as you know, our firm's been active for over 26 years, which is a, a very long time. And it, it is hard to be successful over those long time periods doing just one thing. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, the markets change. Um, central banks get more aggressive. New tools come to uh, to the market, uh, markets become more liquid, less liquid, new markets develop. 
the process of quant investing uh, has to change with it. And for, for many of the best quants, that process is itself systematic. Uh, and I think this is one of the exciting things about the recent developments in computing speed and the amounts of data is it allows more and more advantage to go to those firms that are able to be adaptive and tailor their risks through these events, whether they're the initial disruption or whether they're the recovery from the disruption when central bank comes in and lowers rates or whatever it is. Uh, what, what has been uh, important to us is the ability to systematically uh, tailor the weightings and the signals and the, and the parameters to take advantage of it. So on momentum, for example, uh, our momentum wouldn't look uh, like someone else's momentum. Momentum exists in, in markets uh, and it always exists in, in some market. The trick isn't saying there's momentum, it's how did you identify it? How do you capture it and how do you manage it? Uh, and I hesitate to say it should be in everyone's portfolio because uh, I, I think it's more important what manager is hired to extract the opportunity of momentum. But I'll agree with you that, that momentum is an opportunity, uh, but it's an opportunity that's highly dependent on who's executing it. Is it fair to say that also that risk in this environment has changed? Like the previous mentality that it, we look at volatility as standard deviation of, of assets. You know, if we do have so many indiscriminate buyers coming back to that point, that maybe we need to think about risk differently that risk is seen as a relative level of risk all the time as you build the portfolio? Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, um, so risk is an interesting question. And, and uh, I think a lot of people think about risk simply as the probability of losing money. And that's, that's certainly a good starting point. No one likes to lose money. And in fact, when it happens, they remember that wound in far greater proportion to the joy of making money uh, and they react appropriately. That is why uh, you know, meltdowns seem to happen far more often than, than melt-ups. Although I think you have a good example of both in the last, in the last six months. Um, uh, but risk is uh, first the probability of losing money, but second, and particularly for pension funds or endowments or even for individuals, I often, I often counsel that uh, one should always stop and think about risk, not just as a probability of losing money, but also as a probability of not meeting your necessary or desired return profile. And if I, de I describe it that way, uh, and we go to any state pension fund in the US, all underfunded, some of them dramatically underfunded, um, and and I ask uh, that pension fund manager whether they consider, let's, let's take, for example, someone who's sitting all in treasury bills, just as a hypothetical. And I ask them whether they think they're high risk. Almost all will say, no, they're not high risk. They own treasury bills. I would argue that that's enormously risky because if you have an 8% hurdle, many of them still have six to 8% hurdles, and what's laughable about that is those are gigantic numbers in this environment. Uh, so that's the first laugh. The second laugh is even if they were uh, achieving eight, they uh, would not be able to get back to a fully funded state. So um, th the number doesn't make a lot of sense, but let's say you had an 8% uh, 
target hurdle. Uh, are you ever going to meet it owning treasury bills? I mean, the answer is no. Uh, unless the US government for some reason decides to do a, a um, premium redemption on all treasury bills and pay everyone 120 instead of par, uh, it's not happening. And so for that pension fund manager, every year the hole gets bigger. And it gets bigger in a very predictable way. It's certain risk. And I would argue that that portfolio of all bills is riskier for that pension fund than a more traditional portfolio of equities and alternatives and, uh, and credit and whatever would be in a, in a standard mix. So your question of thinking about risk, I think is a combination of those who are simply afraid of losing money, um, those who have benchmarks and realize they simply can't afford to go to what traditionally would be considered a safe posture of all cash, right? And even now, um, you know, bonds become difficult. People think about bonds as an offset to, to equities. And we've all learned that uh, yields can indeed go much lower, particularly in sovereigns than, than we ever thought. In fact, they can go negative. I think if 20 years ago, I told a class uh, that bond rates could go negative, I wouldn't say, well, no, they can't. Why would anyone buy something to lose money? And yet we see that they do. Uh, and there, there are different reasons for that, but it happens and it happens uh, regularly. But if you have a benchmark and all those options are basically high risk options because they don't put you anywhere near your benchmark, you're then forced to look elsewhere for risk, that you, you need to own some risk. And that, I think, explains um, why you can get melt-ups and you can get people chasing uh, yield and you can get all sorts of things going in the market because while one group is focused on risk as probability of losing money, another group is focused on risk as probability of not meeting a benchmark or in the popular vernacular, you know, the fear of missing out. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, my, my question then becomes, do you, you know, how do you then incorporate these market participants in thinking about how, how they operate in terms of building your models? Because it sounds to me that there's some sort of a, a game theory here that you need to understand how other participants will work and that therefore drives how you should then build a, a quantitative model to take advantage of how they would think. So you remember plants are consuming data of, of some type. Some are uh, consuming what's called alternative data. Some are consuming more mainstream data around rates and prices and, and, and things like that. Um, and when these high risk events happen for a quant, at least for us, but I think this is fairly straightforward, um, uh, you run into you know, four questions in, in a dislocation and in new risk and something that uh, doesn't fit past patterns like March. So the first is a consideration of the levels of volatility. Just what what is the distribution turned into? You know, um, and as as volatility goes up, really any manager should be thinking about what their deal was with their investor. Remember, I started this saying uh, all of us, whether discretionary or quant, take risk on behalf of our clients. Um, we don't always get it right, but we try to drive a hard bargain. And if we're good at it, we do drive a hard bargain. And that risk leads to uh, returns, which 
we can define as an acceptable sharp if you want to pick 0.8 or one or whatever you want to pick as, as a good sharp ratio. Uh, so one is, as markets become more volatile, risk has come into the equation that simply wasn't there before. And if your relationship with clients is to drive a hard bargain on risk, it probably also includes some amount of risk, right? So that would require just a, an expanded risk environment. Um, let's take just a, a easy hypothetical. If, if I'm trying to make 10% a year, for example, someone says, well, I want to get into double digits and, and uh, it doesn't sound very sophisticated, but often uh, investors think in that way. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit better than T-bills. I'm trying to get absolute returns that are nearing double digits, or I'm trying to beat equity markets by a certain amount, whatever it is. Um, and you believe you have strategies that are one sharp, that would back you into the type of risk you need to run. And if markets have greatly expanded risk, you don't need the same positions to get the same kind of risk through your sharp ratio to yield that desired return. So one consideration all this is how much risk is, just comes packaged with the market and how much risk do I want to take? And risk being sort of as you, you think about volatility, just think about that bell-shaped distribution of what's possible. So that's one consideration um, that would lead most managers to, to de-risk into higher risk situations because they're trying to maintain a more constant level of risk. The second consideration, which is equally important, is tail risk. Um, you know, volatility can be upside volatility as well as downside volatility. People hear the word volatility and they associate it with, you know, big negative. But I can tell you Tesla, as an example, has been highly volatile since the end of March. And you would have been very happy uh, with that volatility as it went from, I don't know, 300 or, you know, through, through his 420 price all the way to, I think, 1800 or something. 19. Today. We're at 19 now. We, it just keeps on I, going. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I meant at the beginning of our conversation. Um, so, um, you know, volatility is risk and that is, that is the currency that managers use. So they, you know, it's very hard to make money without taking any risk whatsoever. Uh, Bernie Madoff used to have a good story of it. And we know, um, uh, we know how that worked out. Good managers take risks. They're open with the amount of risks. They take, they define it, and they drive a hard bargain, and that leads to that leads to solid returns over the right uh, period, depending on their, their strategy. So one, we talked about just general uh, volatility levels. Two, we talked about tail risk, and that is, you know, tail risk. We think about the left side of the tail. How fat has that become? Uh, that can that can become extremely uh, fat when people panic. I mentioned earlier, 08 and March of this year, when when for this year it was for a very brief period of time. In 08, it was a longer period when everything was for sale. You know, uh, gold went down, stocks went down, treasuries went down. If it had a price and could be turned to cash, it was for sale. Uh, we saw that recently. That leads to that leads to terrorists. So that's the second big consideration for a quant fund. A third, depending on strategy, is liquidity. Um, uh, we happen to trade in very liquid markets and and uh, and offer liquidity in our funds, and so we need to remain highly liquid. 
Part of that is because illiquid markets are more expensive to trade and we're managing our transaction costs carefully. Um, uh, part of it is because we may need to get out. Um, so uh, those two things go hand in hand. When markets become less liquid, uh, many quants will, will pull back. Uh, I say that, but there, are, there are absolutely are quants who focus on less liquid, right? They get their signal, they enter over time, they stay in for a long time and they exit bit by bit. So it's not all quants are highly liquid, but for the most part, uh, the quant market is focused on more liquid aspects, particularly as you get into quant strategies focused on, um, on the micro aspects of a, of a market, trying to earn bid ask, for example. Do you feel the timing of your trades has changed as you need to think about liquidity and, and what trades you put on um, now is, is, is evolved over, over the last few years? Yeah, so um, not what trades we put on. We require liquidity, but liquidity in itself, it can be a signal for direction. Uh, but in the bulk of our models, we look for liquidity so we can manage transaction costs and enter and exit our positions. And the points of liquidity in the market have changed over time uh, in the equity market, US equity market, there is increasing liquidity around the close. Uh, that has to do with indexers, but also with uh, traditional managers who rebalance on the close uh, to um, deal with the flows they've had. So the bulk of the liquidity comes around the close. So if you're looking for liquidity, you tend to trade around the close and that obviously feeds on itself. And as liquidity dries up, it's one of the things you have to can consider in your quant models. Um, the third thing, that, the fourth thing I'll, I'll mention that kind of ties all this together and dealing with these risks um, is your method of being adaptive. Uh, for us, we're fully systematic and our methods of being adaptive are fully systematic, but they do require time for the models to learn. Uh, and that's what's going on, they're learning. Uh, how the markets have responded. Uh, they can't learn on one day of data, although I suppose you could have, you could have a market making uh, program that could learn significantly over a day or two. Uh, what we do tends to be uh, have longer lives and therefore requires longer periods to learn and adapt. So when you get these shocks for any quant where balls expanded, tail risk expanded, liquidity has change, you will see pretty much across the board that quants will pull back a little bit and give their models time to adapt to the new environment. And, and that is, in my mind, the proper approach to the unknown is to pull back and learn from it before pushing back in. There are, of course, also quant managers who will say they stick with um, their one strategy come hell or high water uh, that is fine unless you have such a major regime change that it just doesn't work anymore. And my argument would be when you enter those environments, you want to de-risk a little bit, let the models adapt. And when you uh, have either discovered that the signals are still valid or the models have learned and adapted and parameters have changed, that is the time to re-risk in, in quant models. And that's, that is... Um, this, this recent period was a good example of that, of most pulling back, adapting, and then re-entering. Well, how, how do quant managers differentiate themselves? Because if I think about it, we've got these 
very similar data sets. We've got the access to computing power um, that's becoming you know, more and more prevalent. Um, where, where is the difference? You know, there's, there's, is it the arms race of data and getting some new proprietary data that you can trade off? Um, is it around the composition of building the model? How do you think about it? Well, this is the good news for humankind. It's the humans. Um, I, I, I watched Terminator the other day, and as we get more and more advanced in our technology, the movie Terminator becomes more and more interesting when the, the machines take over. I was laughing. My new refrigerator sent me a text the other day and told me I'd left the door open. Um, and that's a pretty basic thing. The door is open, and I appreciate getting the text so I could go shut it before everything uh, spoiled. Unfortunately, my refrigerator could not tell me what I wanted to eat that night. So that, that kind of intelligence is rudimentary um, right now. The humans make a difference. The researchers who look at the data, data is not alpha. You often hear people will talk about alternative data as if it's a magic money machine and it's not. Um, it's what you do with the data that leads to edge and alpha and driving a hard bargain with risk dollars. It may be true that there's some alternative data sources that uh, are extremely interesting, uh, but it does not mean that old data sources cease to have value or cease to have alpha in them. You know, it would be as if uh, I was having a hard time finding a good book to read in English. Um, that would not mean that the English language is not good for uh, writing books. It would mean I just hadn't found a good author to use it to, to write an interesting book. And, and so data, the S&P 500 data, for example, people say, well, everyone has that. It, it's not that it's available, it's what you do with it and, and what you notice in it and what your systems and strategies and your human uh, intuition uh, leads you to probe and uh, model and think about what's going on in the S&P, perhaps relative to other markets. You know, as the S&P becomes sensitive to another data set, as it becomes sensitive in a complex way to three other data sets. And those other data sets could all be very common long life data sets as well. But what has occurred is that over time, they've become more impactful on each other. Or in another uh, example, um, I might find that some combination of securities, you know, how I package them, uh, becomes highly sensitive to one particular economic data number. Right? So even though these things are common and no one would look at those and say, geez, oh, you know, there's nothing fancy about that. It's not the data that leads to the alpha. It's the strategies and the signals, and I think very importantly, your ability to adapt and use some form of artificial intelligence to map out uh, and change your predictions, change your parameters as the market develops. So you're constantly digesting and looking for these you know, cause, uh, causal factors, and your signals are adapting, and you're doing that in a wide variety of space. So you don't have any one big bet on, what you have are many different uh, bets on that have differing probabilities as you notice a certain area is 
uh, more productive. You may increase your weight in that up to some reasonable level. I mean, we take very little risk in any single security. I think in our, in our equity book, the, the biggest position, certainly under 3%, and I, I frankly um, I think about it under, under 2%, uh, is the number of positions and the edge in, of all, in all of those in the portfolio construction that end up leading to this superior return. Mm-hmm. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Stu. Great. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. And um, I, I hope that after coronavirus, we can do some of these things in person instead of podcasts. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.